Just when it seemed like the Washington Commander's sale was a done deal, we have a new wrinkle in the story. It's Wednesday, April 19th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Last week, we learned that the Washington Commanders were being sold to a group led by Josh Harris for around $6 billion, record. Now there are claims that there is another bid that is still alive worth a full $1 billion more than that. Joining us to break this down is senior reporter AJ Perez. Welcome, AJ. Thanks for having me back. So, um, yeah, having you back on sooner than I anticipated, what's the deal with this potential new bid? Yeah, there's a lot of questions around it. I spent a couple of days researching it. Um, uh, Brian Davis is a former uh, Duke player, won a couple national championships, um, and he was actually involved with Christian Leitner, who was on the same team in some business dealings more than a decade ago that kind of went south. They were sued for, they were kind of the, a project North Carolina went about $30, billion, $30 million in debt. And, uh, and you know, he it, basically, they, he kind of lost that development there, settled with some people. Um, and uh, he also tried to buy the Grizzlies before that. It's been, there's just a lot of, you know, and he couldn't come up with the money in the end of it. But all of a sudden, he he this was first reported by a DC TV station that you know he had uh, he, he got access to fifty billion dollars of funds. Um, and I've spent the last few days trying to figure out where that came from. Um, you know, we trace it if they're real. You know, the, the, the it looks like you know it could be have a uh, connection to the Middle East. Um, one source said possibly Saudi Arabia. One other and then a source within. Uh, Davis's camp actually mentioned Israel. So, uh, and then there's others involved who just don't even take this seriously. And like a lot of people are not, um, but yeah, that's out there. Uh, Davis's people said they're submitted stuff to the NFL bank of America who's handling the sale has all their information. They're speaking a really, really good game, but per- without providing many details at all. I, I'm just confused as <laughs> to so like, what is, so either this is a real bid and we're just learning about it now for some reason. And yeah, Middle East makes, a fair amount of sense in terms of like where $50 billion might show up from. And we should be clear, the bid is the claim is $7 billion, uh, which I'm sure would get Dan Snyder's attention. Um, what could be going on if this is not real? Uh, it's a, it's a hoax. I mean, uh, you know, he's providing a documentation that it's a Bank of America that that is false. Um, but, you know, we don't know. It's like, you know, Bank of America has not said anything really. I've, you know, during this process at all, we reached out after, you know, when I started reporting on this, nothing. Um, uh, Darren Haynes of Channel 9, who first reported the story uh, from WUSA, uh, got nothing back either. Um, and uh, and it's uh, so we're just uh, kind of left to like kind of figure out, if, is this real? And if so, you know, th- that bid was March 21st when bidding was around five and a half billion dollars. So really, it was one and a half billion dollars more than the current bid, which makes so little sense. Why would you need to bid a billion and a half more? And now it's what now it looks like one billion dollars more to acquire a team if you could just bid maybe a hundred million, two hundred million dollars more. And if it's an all cash bid, like he's saying, you know, that'll sail through. You don't have to worry about you know finances and financing and partners. You know, Josh Harris, his group is worth twelve billion dollars. Um, and there's three people that we know about who are in that group. Um, it, that you need you need a consortium to buy an NFL team these days. Just because it's so expensive, you know, there's very few people in this entire world that could actually buy a team without any help. And uh, Josh Harris has had has had had his stuff together for 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 many weeks. You know, he's above the six billion dollar number. He, his paperwork's been you know sent at least the preliminary paperwork has been sent to the NFL. 
you know, the bidding process doesn't begin until Dan Snyder officially selects the winning bidder. And then the process starts. And that takes about, you know, one to two months before an NFL vote. Yeah, this whole thing's so weird. Um, I feel like if this is real, that number is as high as it is, because they know there are questions about this whole thing. And they want to just pay enough money that we don't ask those questions. So we'll be keeping an eye on this one. AJ Perez, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Up next, I spoke with David Sampson, the former president of the Miami Marlins and Montreal Expos, and the host of Nothing Personal with David Sampson. We got into all kinds of topics from public funding for stadiums to how we should judge team executives to how he learned that Derek Jeter had fired him. We'll have that conversation right after this. Here's what's trending now. You can defer payments of a full NetSuite implementation for six months. 33,000 companies have already upgraded to NetSuite, gaining visibility and control over their financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more. Everything they need to reduce manual processes, boost efficiency, build forecasts, and increase productivity. Whether your business generates millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, take advantage of this special financing offer of no payments or interest for six months at netsuite.com frontoffice. That's netsuite.com slash front office. Okay, I'm joined now by David Sampson, host of Nothing Personal with David Sampson, former president of the Miami Marlins from 2002 to 2017, and before that, um, executive vice president of the Expos from 1999 to 2002. Welcome, David. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Doing great. Yeah, so I'm glad to have you on. So let's start with the presence and maybe we'll we'll move back in time from there. Uh, so tell me about Nothing Personal and the work you're doing with Metal Arc Media. So Nothing Personal is a show that I developed in 2019 that CBS allowed me to launch where I talk about sports and culture, entertainment, politics. It's a no-holds-barred show where I give my opinion about things that are happening because I actually know what goes on behind closed doors, having been in the room where so many things happen. And one of the benefits of Nothing Personal is that it is just business, and I'm happy to talk about all of it because I don't want to run a team again. And that's part of the problem with talking heads these days. Either they've never been in the room, or if they have been in the room, they don't want to talk about what goes on in the room because they want to get back in the room. I love the room in which I'm in. I don't want to stop doing what I'm doing. I'm not trying to get back into sports. It is a uh, a chapter in my life that I had that was outstanding, that got me a World Series ring and all sorts of great memories and experiences. So nothing personal covers anything of any sport, focuses on baseball, but any business story or any interesting story that's going on. I review a movie every day because I watch a movie every day. So that's part of the show. I do picks where I'll pick games to help uh, deal with the gambling side of sports, which is obviously a huge revenue driver these days. So it's fun, 45 minutes every day live. Yeah, a lot of fun, wow. Uh, why don't you wanna go back into the room if you had such a good time? Because I, I have spent my whole career doing different things and, and taking every challenge that I can, making myself incredibly uncomfortable, giving myself a stomach ache. And I found that after the team was sold to Derek Jeter, I would have stayed on. I had a contract to stay on. Uh, I got a text alert from ESPN.com that I had been fired. Uh, I called Derek and said, hey, I just got an alert. Am I actually fired? He said, oh, yeah, I didn't get to you. I'm sorry. 
And I realized that that's great, actually. And two months later, I was part of CBS and getting uh, getting on the other side of the microphone. I was always the public face of the franchise, always comfortable in front of a camera. My brain is always ahead of my mouth, which is important this day and age when you need to understand what you're saying and how you're saying it and why you're saying it. And I won a World Series, hosted an all-star game, built a ballpark, sold a team, bought a team, signed bad players, signed good players, won a lot, lost a lot. So that chapter was outstanding. I wouldn't trade it for anything, but I love the challenge every day that I have now with Nothing Personal. I love the interaction with the audience that I get to do, and social media has enabled that sort of interaction, which is exhausting and addicting, yet important. And so uh, I find myself challenged and uncomfortable with tummy aches every day at 7.59. All right, I guess that's the tummy aches are one thing to aspire to here. Um, <laughs> because you brought up Jeter, and I realize this is like exactly when your tenure ended with the Marlins, but I'm just curious, he, he had this kind of weird moment uh, with the Marlins where he, he bought into the team and it was one of these deals where he doesn't, you know, nowhere close to a majority stake or anything, but it seemed like he was going to be the one calling the shots or like a big part of calling the shots. And then after I forget how long, it was maybe two years, something like that, um, all of a sudden he says, I'm out, I'm selling my stake. I don't want this to be part of how people think of me, essentially, because I can't. Uh, it seemed like maybe the team wasn't going to have the funding or something Mm -hmm. ideological or structural was not there for him. Do you have any insights or feelings in, into that? Oh, I have both in abundance. How long do you have? So Derek Jeter was the perfect person to buy a team because he didn't use his money and he had someone in the name of Bruce Sherman who let him do anything he wanted with absolutely no accountability. And if you can get that kind of job, you might as well go get it. So the money he invested in the team, he got paid back in salary. He was able to bring in all his own people and he thought that everything that I did was bad, so he erased anything I had done and figured he could do Costanza, which is opposite day. Anything I did, he did the opposite and assumed it would work. He assumed that he could get a bigger TV deal. He assumed he could get a big naming rights deal, that he'd get tons of season ticket holders, that he would make the team a winning team. And after four years, I think he realized that being a shortstop and being an executive are two totally different things. One time I actually said to him, you know, Derek, I could never be a shortstop for the Yankees. And it's true, right? It's two totally different skills. And I think he realized quickly that, uh, you know, being a pitch man for Subway was probably going to be more up his alley than running the team every day and being accountable for that. And I think the partners with the Marlins realized that the promises he had made were not coming true. And so that made getting rid of him sort of an obvious thing. Baseball in Miami has been a something of a paradox for me. Um, for a long time, because Miami, people call it the, the unofficial capital of Latin America. And as we saw with the World Baseball Classic, you know, baseball is the world in in uh, in much of that part of the of, of, of the world, you know, in the DR, Puerto Rico, Cuba. Um, and yet, you know, it's it's been difficult for the Marlins to draw fans to put a winning team on the field consistently, though you've got two World Series, one one while you were in office there. So yeah, is it a uniquely challenging market in ways that we might not see from the outside? I think it's a very misleading market because first of all, you think of Miami, you think of it as this great, amazing city that's so full of diversity and everyone's trying to move there and everyone's trying to be a part of it. But the funny part is that baseball is a summer sport. And what I found is that all of the wealthy individuals, they didn't spend their summers in Miami. They would go north for the summer. So they would be around there during the winter. 
and they would be there for six months and a day for tax purposes. And so trying to convert them to season ticket holders was very difficult because our season is during the summer and they just weren't there. So they could just come and buy tickets for postseason or late in the season if the team's in it and not have to spend money during the season when the team could or could not be competitive. The second thing that Miami doesn't have, despite all the protestations of all their politicians, there's really no corporate base. So you look at teams that we're competing with, look at other low revenue, small, smaller market teams like Kansas City or Minnesota or even Tampa. Uh, the lack of corporate support in Miami in general is staggering. And don't misunderstand, Carnival sponsors the Heat because there is an owner of Carnival who's the owner of the Heat. The Dolphins got a huge amount of money from Hard Rock. NFL is a completely different animal. Though Steve Ross realizes that winning on the field is proving to be very difficult for him, but all the other events that he does around pro player is really what Wayne Huizinga envisioned when he owned the Marlins and the Dolphins at one point. So I think that the demographics of Miami would indicate that it's a wealthy city, but it's got one of the lowest incomes of any of the major league cities. You'd think there's more corporate support, but there is not. You'd think there's more fans, but the truth is those fans who come out for WBC, who have that sense of patriotism and that sense of baseball pride and connectivity, that exists for the front of the jersey, which has their country on it and makes them long for their home and feel proud of their home, but it doesn't translate. We've tried for over a decade to have it translate and it didn't. Wayne Huizinga tried, John Henry tried, Jeffrey Loria tried, Bruce Sherman tried, and they've all found the same thing, that it's possible that Miami is simply not a baseball market. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, should that team move to, I don't know, Charlotte, Nashville, somewhere else? So there's a deal in place for Marlins Park, which is now called uh, Lone Depot Park. Uh, no coincidence, they got their naming rights deal when they signed a a global deal with Major League Baseball, little known fact there. Lone Depot sponsors the LCS, I believe, and all of a sudden a naming rights deal came through. And that's great for the Marlins to have that extra revenue. But the team under the agreements that are all public do not uh, uh, allow for the team to move for the lease period, which is 38 years. And they're now in year 13 or 12. I'd have to count from 2012. It's, it's, so it's going to be a long time before that team can move. So there's got to be a way for somebody to come in and figure out how to put a winning team on the field and then figure out whether or not that will help increase revenue. And I guess the, the Rays can move, but it seems like they're, they're going to stay in St. Petersburg. Um, is that like a whole, like a separate challenge? Like is Miami and St. Petersburg, are they different enough worlds or same basic situation? No, I think they're very different. I think the reason why Tampa and Oakland have not gotten themselves together yet and they're next, and the reason why I don't think either one will move, and I've talked about this on Nothing Personal, I don't think the A's are going to move to Vegas. I don't think Tampa is going to move anywhere. MLB wants to keep as many cities available as possible for expansion because make no mistake, MLB is going to 32 teams. It's a matter of when, not if. The existing owners want that cash that comes from expansion fees, and you want to keep as many cities as possible bidding for expansion franchises. You don't want to waste the money on or waste the city on moving an existing team. So I think deals will get done in Oakland and Tampa. Yeah, I, I'm, I live a few blocks from Oakland. I'm actually going to the game tonight. 
And I feel like I'm one of the only people who has been saying I don't think they're leaving just because they're not acting like a team that is actually making plans to move to Vegas. If they were, if they were, then I think we'd see some evidence of that. We'd see them really trying hard for public funding. They would have settled on a site by now. Um, their lease only runs through next year. So they could be making moves that they aren't making to leave. So I, I think, yeah, a deal's going to get done once they figure There's out the no public question. funding. I mean, they, they've done certain things that make me smile. They're right out of the playbook of how to get public money for your building. They've threatened relocation. They've gone as far as going to Vegas very publicly, looking at different sites, optioning sites, buying land that can be used for a stadium or for something else. So these are all things that teams do when they're trying to get a deal done where they are. And I don't blame John Fisher one bit for using any sort of leverage he can, because getting these deals done is obviously very, very difficult. And we saw that with the Buffalo Bills, how, you know, they were at least privately saying, you know, like, oh, we could go to, you know, somewhere in Texas. You know, they were floating all sorts of locations where because that's your leverage, right? If they say, you know, we're going to stick around no matter what, but we'd really like five hundred million dollars. Uh, please give it to us. Then, you know, the appetite for that is is not huge. What should there be like, I don't know, I, I, it feels like the public funding, um, I'm not going to say system, but the status quo right now is this is what teams do. They they say, oh, well, you know, if our lease is coming up. We're going to leave if you don't give us, you know, X mm -hmm. hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and sometimes they do leave. But, you know, you look at the analyses of these deals and usually the public is not necessarily coming out for the better for it. They get to keep their team, which is nice. But in terms but that of- That counts, by the way. That, that does count, so, yeah. So think about what the government is for, right? You, No one's doing this level of scrutiny when a museum is built, or when a convention center is built, or when a performing arts center is built. And I view professional sports as one of the many offerings that a world-class city has for its citizens and for its tourists. And so the government's job is to make money. The private sector's job, excuse me, the private sector's job is to make money. The government's job is actually not to make money, believe it or not. It's to provide a civilization, a community, optionality for citizens to attract business. There is no doubt that having professional sports in your city makes your city more attractive. I was thinking about Buffalo. It's a great example. There was no chance the Bills were going to move. Zero. Both from an NFL standpoint, but on top of that, from a team standpoint and a city standpoint. Can you imagine Buffalo losing the Bills? It's as silly as the Packers saying that they're going to leave Green Bay. Green Bay will never allow the Packers to leave. So I view the leverage as something that is used publicly, but inside the negotiating room, both sides know that a deal has to come, has to happen. Yeah, I think we're seeing that same kind of language around the Milwaukee Brewers, where I don't, no one's seriously talking about them leaving, but they're trying to get this deal together to fix up the stadium for, you know, what, $300 million or something. And um, and the language around that is, oh, this will mean that the Brewers are going to stick around for another 30 years. And it's like, well, yeah, they're probably going to stick around no matter what. But yes, they would appreciate $300 million. Well, because again, they're, they're, they need each other. So the Brewers need Milwaukee. And I would argue pretty persuasively that Milwaukee needs the Brewers. You have a ballpark there ballpark that you need to spend money to keep your ballpark in first class condition. You need new scoreboards. You need new seats. You need new areas of revenue. You have to do all these things. And you really are partners with the public. That is why it's called a public-private partnership. And that is how it's supposed to work. So different topic, but um, you are a baseball president for 
couple decades for two different teams or, you know, executive vice president in one case. How, for a fan, how should we judge baseball presidents or sports team presidents? Can we judge them from, you know, from our TVs? How many team presidents can you name? Okay. So I always viewed my job in different lights. One, not all presidents are the public face of the franchise. That was my job. That was one of them. Two, I was in charge of the business and baseball operations. So I had employees, like any company, a CEO or a president of a company, your job is to have people who work with you and for you to do their job in a way that makes your company successful. And those who are good at it get paid, like players or like certain executives. Those who are bad at it get released, or if they're not players, get terminated. It's exactly like any other business. And how do I want to be judged? I'll tell you that in 18 years, I never once gave that thought. I don't think I'm a good president because I'm lucky enough to have a ring. I don't think that you're a bad president if your team doesn't win a World Series. I think if you want to judge me by the ROI that my owner got, then that would make me a damn good president because that was my job, was to make him money. And my job when we lost money operationally was to convince him to fund those losses, telling him that you will get it back on the back end should you or your daughter or anybody else choose to sell the team. And I started off, he was my stepfather actually, up until 2003. And after 2003, he and my mother got divorced and I was not related to him anymore. And we worked side by side for the next 14 years. And I always knew what my job was. And that was to run a team that, could win, but above that could be sustained financially, spiritually. And I don't mean that in any sort of weird way. Like when you are a president of a team, I always knew that I was just holding the baton temporarily, holding it for the next president, the next owner, because that's how I view sports. It's sort of part of the community fabric. But on the other hand, I had to do things that were unpopular. And if you're gonna be an effective leader, if you have a hundred percent approval rate, the only thing I can promise you is that you're not being an effective leader. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, before we go, you've got another show launching on Metal Arc Media. In addition to Nothing Personal, uh, what can you tell us about that one? So it's a sports business podcast with John Skipper, who is the former president of ESPN. He ran DAZN, and now he started Metal Arc Media with Dan Lebitard. And he and I have a very interesting uh, perspective because I've negotiated against him. Uh, both personally and professionally. He is was part of a company that would buy what we were selling, meaning rights to games. He has very interesting experiences and ideas of things that are happening and have happened. I've got a different perspective on things that have happening or are happening. And we spend 45 minutes a week or every two weeks, it, we'll figure out how often I can corral John to do it, where we try to explain to people what's happening. So the sporting class is really a double entendre. It is, uh, it's a funny take on movies like Best in Show, and it's also classes in session. We're gonna talk about issues that are really not being talked about, or if they are, they're being spoken about by people who really may not have the best understanding of actually what happens. All right, sounds like a lot of fun, and we are pro sports business podcasts around here. Yes. David Sampson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Hit the subscribe button if you have not already and leave us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you're listening. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you tomorrow.